This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. On today's episode of Mentally Stronger. One of the first times I met with you, you said to me, Amy, one of your problems is going to be you think you're a therapist who got lucky because you had a viral article. If you don't believe that you deserve to be on the stage, other people aren't going to believe you either. And as soon as you said that, I burst into tears. And I'm not usually the kind of person that walks around no, crying in public. And so, and you were absolutely right. I thought, you know, I don't, I don't belong to be on this stage. Like I shouldn't be here. And I think you were right though. As long as I believed that getting up on that stage, like nobody was going to believe I deserved to be there if I didn't. How do we know when we need to do that internal work and then not walk around announcing our struggles to the point that we cause other people to feel sorry for ourselves? Yeah, it's a fair question. It's uh, uh, it's the difference between struggles that you're in the midst of and struggles which you've overcome. And Welcome to Mentally Stronger, the show that will help you develop the mental strength you need to reach your greatest potential, no matter what life throws your way. I'm Amy Morin psychotherapist, mental strength trainer, and an international best-selling author of five books on mental strength. Every Monday, I introduce you to a guest whose story and expertise can inspire you to think, feel, and do your best in life. And the fun part is, we record it all from a sailboat in the Florida Keys. My new book, 13 Things Mentally Strong Couples Don't Do, goes on sale December 26. But if you pre-order it right now from any retailer, you get a free month of therapy at BetterHelp that you can start right now. And I think one of the coolest things is you can either keep it for yourself or you could gift the free month of therapy to somebody else. So if you want to give it to someone this holiday season, just buy the book for $19.99 or less and then give them a gift that's worth over $300. Of course, you can keep it for yourself too. And as soon as you buy the book, you just submit your proof of purchase and I'll email you a promo code for BetterHelp. That's good for a month of therapy where you can chat with a therapist every day. You can set up regular video sessions or you can chat with them via a live chat. You can accomplish a lot in one month of therapy. To learn more, go to my website, amymorinlcsw.com slash couples, or just click on the link in the show notes. Now let's dive into today's episode. Do you feel like your conversations lately are superficial? Do you struggle to feel authentic when you're talking to people? Do you worry that you aren't an interesting conversationalist? If any of those things sound familiar, today's episode is for you. 
social connections are essential to good mental health. Close relationships give you an opportunity to build mental strength. And of course, they require you to practice your skills. Like you need good communication skills and emotion regulation skills. But close relationships also help you stay mentally strong, especially when you're going through tough times. Social support is one of the key factors in healing from trauma and coping with stress. But of course, close relationships are also what makes life a lot better. And lately I'm hearing from a lot of listeners who feel like they're struggling to make authentic connections with people right now. Some people are saying, I feel like I have to smile and pretend I'm great all the time, even though I'm not. And other people are saying, I told somebody what I was really going through, and I think I scared them away. So I knew just the right person to help us figure out how to be authentic, which is key to developing healthy relationships, without sharing so much about ourselves that it can backfire. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Nick Morgan. He's a communication coach, keynote speaker, and best-selling author of several books on communication. As you'll hear a little bit later, he also happens to be my speaking coach. When I first started giving keynote speeches about 10 years ago, I called him for help. Turns out that was one of the best investments I've made in my business as a speaker and as an author. Some of the things he talks about today are what it really means to be authentic, how to avoid being an oversharer, and how to tell stories and share personal struggles that resonate with the people that you're talking to. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for The Therapist Take, where I'll break down some of Nick's strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Dr. Nick Morgan on how to be authentic without being an oversharer. Nick Morgan, welcome to Mentally Stronger. Amy, it's a great pleasure to be here. I'm excited to talk to you again. It's been a while since I've touched base with you. And when I was hearing from my audience, the big problem that a lot of people are facing, I thought you were the perfect person to reach out to. And what I'm hearing is a lot of our listeners are saying these days, they're struggling to connect with other people. They find that mm. their communication is very polite, that the other parents maybe at the soccer game are nodding and smiling and so there's like, yeah, we have all of these polite conversations, but yet it seems very superficial. And they're like, I don't know how to get past that. I don't know how to express myself. And then, so that's one problem. The other big problem I'm hearing, which I'd love to get to in a minute, is from people who are saying, I feel like I have my social media self, and then I have the self that I present to people, and they don't necessarily line up. So I know that you're an expert in communication and that you talk a lot about authenticity. So I thought... Mm. I wanted to reach out to you. Let's start with the first problem. When it comes to those superficial conversations, are you seeing or hearing the same sorts of things from people? Actually, yes. Uh, it's it's uh, it's fascinating that that you run into it in in uh, in a slightly different context, let's say, but uh, but a very similar problem. I think um, what's happening is. Uh, well, there, there are a number of reasons, and let's be careful uh, while we do this. Uh, so, deep social analysis you know, to to uh, start with the appropriate caveats that uh, um, that the the research the research is uh, uh, is thin on the ground for this kind of thing. Um, but nonetheless, anecdotally, at least, and certainly in, in some sense, in terms of trends, 
um, we have to acknowledge that the world has become, for everybody who is plugged into the social media um, online universe in some way, a scarier place in the last decade. And how you react to that is an, ultimately an individual decision. But one of the ways certainly people have reacted to that is to say, I'm not going to get involved in the crazy fray that I see out there. I'm terrified of becoming a object of somebody's wrath. Uh, uh, so I'm going to play it safe and I'm going to, I'm going to uh, take my, take my toys and, and exit the sandbox and go home and, and cocoon where it's safe. Um, I can, I can give you a hilarious example of what happens if you don't play it safe. Um, I wrote what I thought was a completely innocent blog post on a very funny little study that I'd found, which discovered that um, if you smile, you look a couple years older than if you don't smile. And I thought this was irresistible, uh, and specifically for my audience, which is professional speakers, executives who speak that kind of thing. And the, in that world, they're all obsessed, like a lot of other worlds where appearance matters, with looking young. The, the, uh, the lion's share of speaking gigs go to young-looking, fit-looking, healthy-looking people. Um, and so th this was a, a funny commentary on that. Should they smile? Should they not? Smiling is good, but if it makes you look older, oh no, what do we do about that? So uh, the, the, my conclusion was... Uh, find a new level of seriousness beyond your old habit of smiling in order that you don't look older. Well, I angered the aging lobby. Um, and so I got an initial tweet from a woman who, who said I was picking on old people and that, and that uh, it was the cruelest kind of ageism in the world to tell people not to smile so that they didn't look older. So she was taking the the, uh, the study and my point about it and completely twisting it out of shape and out of recognition, but um, the, turning it somehow into a, a, a stab at old people or a slap at old people. And then the the spin and the and the response was just amazing in this in this world. You know, it was it was almost a week of of daily, hourly, minute by minute, just tweet after tweet after tweet from people who just pile on. And so once, you, once you've experienced that, I mean, that one I took with a grain of, of uh, salt or humor or something because it was so far off the mark. But um, once you've experienced that, the urge to crawl back in a hole somewhere and, and just say the heck with the whole thing is pretty strong. So uh, I understand that and playing it safe is a natural human response to that. But it's a sad one, which is the follow-up point, I think. Right. And it makes sense. And I think in face-to-face -face interactions sometimes, and I've been guilty of this, like, I don't want to say anything stupid. So I just won't say anything at all. Or I don't want to say anything that's offensive. Or I don't know how other people feel about certain things these days, like the pandemic or politics. You don't know where people fall. So I think a lot of people are playing it safe. The consequence of that is we're seeing so many studies right now on loneliness and how many people feel deeply lonely. And the solution to loneliness isn't just get outside and be around people because I'm hearing from so many people who say I feel really lonely in a crowded room or when I'm surrounded by people because I just don't feel like I connect to them. Yeah, that's a that's the real problem I think underlying all of this is what's the right level of intimacy that we have with people? What can we achieve with people in a, in a world which doesn't feel as safe? 
it would never have been, um, uh, occurred to anybody um, probably a decade ago, but certainly 20 years ago, that a marriage could break up because one side was in favor of one political personage and the other and the other half of the marriage was in favor of another. And yet I have heard real life examples of marriages breaking up over politics now that that never used to be the case. Uh, in fact, uh, there was a great example of a couple of speechwriters, one of whom was Democratic, one was Republican in my world, that were married and had this famous colorful marriage. Uh, and they they said, we love to argue about politics. Well, that those happy days are long gone. Nobody loves to argue about politics anymore. So, um, um, yeah, the result is the result is loneliness, and and the the cure to that, unfortunately, is the or not unfortunately, perhaps, is the hard work of of becoming intimate. And where does authenticity come into this whole conversation and being more authentic when we talk to people versus hiding ourselves? You know, I thought that one of the good results of the pandemic was that we could all be authentic people from now on, because there was a lot of talk about that during the pandemic and supposedly a lot of rethinking and a lot of uh, uh, self-evaluation about careers and lives, because because we all had a chance to slow down a little bit during the pandemic and look at ourselves and look at our relationships and say, huh, um, I want to continue this. I don't want to continue that. So maybe uh, maybe it's time to make some changes and authenticity was certainly a piece of that. Um, but, uh, that seems to have come and gone a little bit with the, with the pandemic. Um, and the, the old, uh, urge not to be authentic is coming back in, in this natural swing of the pendulum, I think. And that's too bad because when you think about it on the whole, Authenticity should be a great relief to everybody, except for a few homicidal maniacs and psychos that are presumably out there. But statistically, I'm sure you're going to tell me that's a very small percentage of the population. And so for the vast majority of us who are nice, decent, ordinary folks, authenticity should be a relief because you don't have to uh, put on your tuxedo or your fancy ball gown, uh, metaphorically speaking, to go to the store. You can just be you. Um, but here's the catch. Um, and here's the way to start thinking about authenticity. Nobody wants, and I, I hope this, isn't come, this doesn't come as a complete shock to your viewers and listeners, but nobody wants 110% of you. Nobody wants the entire picture. Uh, what we want is an edited version of you, the most interesting version or the most useful version or the most appropriate version in this situation. Everybody has responded to some sharing by somebody at some point saying, ooh, too much information. TMI is also a thing. And so how do these two things, authenticity and TMI, exist in the same world? Well, there's a, there's a line there, and you want to be on the authentic side of that line. You don't want to be on the TMI side of that line. And so finding that place is, is really important for, it's important as, as children growing up to learn what those lines are. And then it's important to reestablish them on a regular basis as grownups. And, and it begins with realizing that not, you're not expected to, nor does anybody want you to share everything about yourself. So it's a question of, and it's the empowering piece is you get to decide. 
What are you going to share? And so you can be authentic without sharing, without oversharing, right? And so if you're yes. having a if you're having a bad day, you're in a dark place in life, and somebody says, "Hey, how are you?" You don't necessarily have to run through the whole story or tie it back to your childhood. You can find ways to still be authentic without going too deep into what you're struggling with. Yeah, absolutely. There's the responding in the moment in ways which uh, are okay for that situation. Um, and and then there, there are uh, sort of longer term ways in, in, in relationships and the sort of relationships like you're uh, meeting on the soccer field, you're, you're all parents for kids who are playing soccer, let's say, um, in that situation, then you presumably want to gradually develop a more intimate relationship, uh, but it doesn't have to carry all the dark things that, that have happened or, and certainly not back to your childhood. This is the first time in my life when I haven't had a pet. Up until two years ago, I had Jackson, a 19-year-old Himalayan cat, and Fiona, a 17-year-old English Springer Spaniel. Both of them lived on the sailboat and adjusted pretty well to life on the water. I miss them, and I look forward to getting another pet when the time is right. Today's episode is sponsored by the ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program. Your pet is part of the family, and you want the best for them no matter what. But vet bills can really add up. That's why you should check out pet insurance. And with ASPCA Pet Health Insurance, you can focus on the care your pet deserves and cover what matters most. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash stronger. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash stronger. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash stronger. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency, LIM. Do you want to get high-quality meat delivered straight to your house? Or in my case, a sailboat? Try ButcherBox. It saves me time and money. And if you order right now, Mentally Stronger listeners can get steak, chicken, or salmon free in every single order for an entire year. I love that ButcherBox offers grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, and wild-caught seafood. There are no antibiotics or added hormones. They even offer vegetarian options. ButcherBox lets you decide how often you want deliveries, and you can pick a curated plan, or you could completely customize your box. Sign up at butcherbox.com stronger and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer, plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com stronger. And use code STRONGER to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus, get $20 off your first order. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And you tell a story about you were on stage giving a speech, and I believe your dad had just passed away, and you were wrestling with, do I say anything or not? Do I get up there and just try to give a good speech, but people might notice something's a little bit off, so do I explain why perhaps I'm not the 100% person that they're expecting to see on stage? And ultimately, you decided not not to share it, right? That's right. It was a, um, it, it was a difficult choice because I knew it was going to affect me. This was a profound event in my life and I was not myself. But as I thought about it, the decision I made was that it wasn't fair to the, that audience who had signed up for a particular topic. Um, and my father's uh, passing was not relevant to it. Had it been relevant, that would have been a different story. If I'd been there to talk about the afterlife or something, then it might've been perfectly appropriate. Um, but in this case, uh, the topic was communications of a particular kind, and, and it just wasn't relevant. And I couldn't make it relevant without hijacking the the occasion and then making the audience feel like they were obligated to feel sorry for me and say how bad they felt. And we were going to spin our wheels for quite a while just dealing with that. And so I didn't want to do that. But it did put the burden on me to on a happy face. And that was, that was tough, frankly. And I guess we wrestle with those exact same decisions, probably in everyday life. When somebody says, how are you? 90% of the time, probably most of us say good, regardless of how we actually are. And to figure out who are those people that you want to tell, actually, I'm struggling versus who are the people you just put on a smile and say, I'm good, even when you're not. Yeah, I think that's both a strategic as well as uh, an emotional decision. I think we go too far in that uh, situation and we underestimate the power or the capacity of people, even uh, people with whom we have uh, just a nodding acquaintance, but whom we might desire a stronger connection to absorb a little bit of real news. And you don't have to go into the whole story, but um, you know, you might say, uh, that, um, you know, I'm really, uh, really struggling with my uh, teenage uh, uh, daughter right now, for example. Um, she's at one of those stages. And if you put it in terms that are easily recognizable as, as sort of understandable memes or, or understandable psychological states for the, audi- for the uh, person you're talking to, the audience, then, um, then they're liable to uh, be able to absorb it pretty efficiently and easily. The, the key to all this, I'll, gi- I'll give you the secret, and maybe this is too early in the podcast to give you the <laughs> secret, but um, uh, when I was a boy, my grandmother uh, used to uh, in- invite us to uh, the family to dinner. We were sort of the black sheep of the family, uh, and my dad was, uh, and, but we get invited to the, the high holy days of Thanksgiving and, and Christmas and, and you know, the, other, the, the other big holidays. And at a certain point, once kids, my cousins and I had grown enough, we were allowed to be uh, set at the table, the grown-up table. But there was a uh, there was a test, and, and there was a, a, a an ordeal that we knew we were going to go through. Um, you wanted to do this because the food, frankly, was better at the grown-up table. So we were, and 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 there was, of course, this issue of being seen as, as starting to grow up and, and 
be uh, cool enough to sit at the grown-up table. But um, we knew grandma was going to call on us. Um, and she would look around the table and she would say, Nicholas, share something worthwhile with the uh, with with the gathered guests. And it wasn't always just family. Sometimes they were friends of hers, too. Uh, and uh, grandma was quite the social queen of the town that she lived in. And so they were often uh, fairly notable people in those in, in that sense of the of the of the town. And so you didn't want to screw up too badly. And. As, as a kid, learning what was uh, uh, sort of relevant to share to a grown-up circle, not of all of whom knew who you were, um, and what wasn't relevant was a real challenge. And if you missed it, as I did a few times, and as all my cousins did, grandma would say, Nicholas, not of general interest. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. You know, And you were lucky if you got any dessert at that point. Um, Later on, so um, we all lived in in dread of that phrase um, being being lowered upon us. But uh, I really uh, came to love it in the long run because she was hitting on an important point, and this is the TMI versus authenticity point: is you need to know what that dividing line is for the particular audience that you're talking to. And it varies. That line shifts depending on who you're talking to and, and how deep your connection is with them. But you should always think in those terms. What's of general interest? What is something that will um, brighten their day, um, darken their day, but in a thoughtful way? Give them an insight into human nature? Have some germ of an anecdote that they can tell to somebody else? You know, you, how is it? What, what, what's the benefit you're bringing to that conversation? What's the general interest? So that it's not just you going, oh, yeah, my hip is killing me. And, ah, you know. And you've mastered that. So I met you for the first time. It had to have been 10 years ago. And in one of our early conversations, you said there were three things that changed your life. You mm -hmm. read a book by the Dalai Lama. You died. And you mm -hmm. found out your dad was gay. Yes. I remember that conversation like it was yesterday. Wow. In the, in the last 10 years, I've had many conversations where I've heard long-winded tales of people who found a jacket on sale or they went bowling or <laughs> they went on a vacation and it was four, a four-hour story. And I don't really remember the details of a lot of those conversations. I remember that from 10 years ago, again, mm -hmm. just like it was yesterday. If somebody else said, let me tell you three things about my day, I'm not going to remember it. That stuck into my head. Clearly, you've mastered the art of being able to say things in a way that makes people remember. Well, the, I'll, I'll give away another another secret there for that particular one. Uh, if you think in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, everybody at least nods when I say Maslow's hierarchy of needs because everybody's heard of it. Uh, he said there were five levels of needs. At the base was physiology, food and shelter. Um, safety was the next one, then love or, and then esteem and then self-actualization. Self-actualization is refining your golf handicap or your haiku ability or, or whatever, whatever thing it is that's your favorite hobby or, or, or thing to do when, when, it, when all the hard work is done. And Maslow's job was to get, or his hope was that everybody would get to the top and in a just society, we'd all have our lower needs taken care of and be able to just self-actualize all the time, which is a lovely thought and still is. 
But what I realized was that it's a great model for communications if you turn it on its head. People engage in conversation um, depending on how low on Maslow's hierarchy you uh, start that conversation. And so uh, if you start at the safety level, in this case, death, then um, then you're going to be engaged. So the, the, the clever device I used to get your attention, let's say, was the key one was uh, that I died. And, and also the other one that learning my father was gay, that's another thing that I was doing there, uh, which is, involves a bit of a risk, but we call that in the communications world going first. In other words, I'm sharing an intimacy at a certain level that allows you to either stand back and go, oh, didn't want to know that, or to share a, sim- a similar intimacy at that same sort of level later on in the conversation. So there were there were two things going on in that in the trio of things I um, I told you uh, that really affect how people respond to your your uh, conversational proffers, if you will. And even in those stories, I'm sure people can Google it now and they'll find the, the longer version of, of those three things. I hope so. But in, when you shared it, I mean, again, you know how to make it a very succinct story. I think something a lot of people struggle with is figuring out what are the important facts to share in a story. You went on a vacation last week. Somebody says, how was it? Some people just say it was great. Somebody else tells a four-hour story about what the food was like on the second day and then what happened when they went to the pool and it becomes a really long story and people become disinterested. How do you get better at telling stories or understanding how to make them interesting and only getting to the point? Yes. Well, that's the art of storytelling, isn't it? And that's a lifetime pursuit. I think there are a couple of tricks you can use to, to get started. One of them is, um, is certainly thinking in terms of less is more. You alluded to uh, the kinds of stories that seem to go on forever. Um, too much detail is is uh, a conversation and an interest killer. If you uh, um, if you think in terms of what's the minimal amount of detail I need to provide to make this story comprehensible to the other person, then that's that's sort of the right place to start. Um, we uh, we need to know um, uh, when I say something like I died, then you want to know okay, how what situation were you in that got you near death, uh, but you don't need to know when I was born necessarily or any of the intervening things. And the the other secret to that too is, and I, uh, I demonstrated that and, and you proved it in terms of being able to remember it 10 years later, is that I began as late as possible in the story, but no later. And the insight there is that most of us experience our own lives chronologically, obviously. First this happens, then that happens. And so when we want to tell a story to somebody, we tend to go chronologically. Where did it start? And we often go back too far. Uh, and so uh, the, the, uh, the understanding there is that the, chron- the chronological ordering is probably not the most interesting way to hear the story. And instead, think about what's the latest in that story that I can start and still make it comprehensible. And it's it's uh, it's it's better to backfill. It's better to get people's attention with something that's low on Maslow's hierarchy, and then backfill the necessary details than it is to go all the way back to the beginning. 
I can give you um, I can give you an example of that torn from the speaking world, if if that would be uh, please relevant. do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so um, I got a call from and this is a number of years ago now, maybe fifteen years ago, from a woman who was part of the first couple, married couple, to climb Mount Everest. And she'd gotten, they had gotten a lot of press about it because everybody was curious, you know, how did the marriage survive the rigors of climbing Mount Everest and no showers for months on end? And, and you know, what was all that like? People wanted to know. Um, and so they got a lot of free press. She was invited to start speaking um, and, and she jumped at the chance because she'd been an IT salesman and salesperson. And it was, uh, this seemed like a, a step up from that in her mind. Um, so off she goes, and she's starting to speak about it. And she begins with a picture of her and her husband standing on the top of Mount Everest in their parkas and the icicles on their face and the big grin. And you'd think, okay, that's a cool place to start. Here we are at the top. Woohoo, let's celebrate. Uh, but people were reporting that uh, there wasn't any drama in the speech. She was introduced as the person or the couple, part of the couple that had climbed Mount Everest. And she starts with a picture of them standing on the top. So where's the drama in that? So she had begun too late in the story. Um, and so instead, this, the, the opening we crafted was we had her say, um, it was three o'clock in the morning when my husband tapped me on the shoulder, woke me up uh, and said, um, we have about four hours of window before the storm comes in and we lose our chance to get to the top of the mountain. We've been on the mountain two and a half months. I'd really like a shower. I don't know about you, but do you want to go for the, uh, for the mountain today? There's a, there's a risk because of the storm, but this is our last chance. And she said, heck yes, let's do this and get out of here. So we start climbing. It's still dark. It's about, uh, uh, 20 degrees below zero, the temperature's dropping, the winds are rising, they're at 35 miles an hour and rising. They're starting to the point where, get to the point where it's pushing us around even a little bit. And I notice as my husband is walking in front of me, that even though he's walking very slowly and deliberately, at that altitude just below the summit of Mount Everest, you can only take one step every 30 seconds. And even at that speed, he was stumbling. So finally, I pat him on the shoulder and I say, Phil, what's wrong? You're stumbling. What's going on? And he turns around and his, his eyes are purple. They've frozen. He says, Sue, I'm blind. I have to get off the mountain in 12 hours or it's permanent. Do you mind if we don't get to the top of Mount Everest today? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I, that is the... The speaker, Sue, says, of course not. <laughs> Let's save your eyesight. Let's get the heck off the mountain. And so we started down the mountain. We were down in 12 hours. And I'm relieved to tell you that my husband's eyes did recover. He is able to see to this day. But we did not get to the top of Mount Everest that day. And then suddenly people are engaged and they want to know what happened and 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 how did you get to the top of the mountain? And did his eyes freeze again? And, <laughs> and what was that like? And how are you all feeling? You know, on and on and on. It raises a lot of questions. And so people are engaged. So that was the right place to start that story. Just, just at the cliffhanging moment before they made the last attempt on the top, um, but not starting with a picture of, of them at the top, because then the story's over. 
And that's an interesting example too, when you talk about your struggles, it's not just about giving away the end. Yeah, I got the job, something amazing happened, ta-da, here I am. But when you talk about the backstory that involves, no, I struggled to get there, then people are interested in, he in hearing more before you get to the victory part. Yeah, that's a nice, uh, a nice point and one we should stop on and just, and, and just underline because um, one of the things I do is work with executives who want to tell their stories. They become very successful, um, started a new business or, or dominated an industry and, and they made tons of money and then they want to give back. And it comes from a nice place. They want to help other people. And typically what they want to say is, here are the five things I did that made me wonderfully successful. And audiences, took me a while to learn this early in my career, but audiences hear those five things with a certain weariness and boredom. Because, uh, first of all, it sounds like the guy or gal is just bragging on themselves. I got up earlier than everybody else and worked harder is sort of typically the feeling that you get listening to it. And you think, oh, how nice for you. Um, and, and then they're, they don't feel real uh, to us because it feels like they haven't had any struggle. And you think, well, it was easy for them, fairly or unfairly. Uh, it was easy for them. They didn't really do anything. And look at me, poor me, I'm struggling here. And so I've had to learn the hard way and all speakers and storytellers need to learn that what we care about, what we humans care about is your failures, not your successes. Those are always more interesting because we're all human. We want to know, yeah, she went through a hard time too, or, or he struggled as well. And, and then we can go, yeah, I, I feel that way too sometimes. And, and so that gives me hope. And to that point, though, sometimes we need to do our own internal work. And I don't know if you remember this, but I also remember this from it was the first time I met you. So I had called you because uh, I had written this viral article, got a book mm -hmm. deal. My first opportunity on stage was next to Gary Vaynerchuk and Sally Hogshead. <laughs> I, oh, wow. I was a social worker who'd only ever spoken like in a church basement for $50. Hmm. And I got through that first speaking engagement and thought, I have no business being here. And I thought Sally Hogshead was an amazing speaker. I Googled her, found out that you were her coach, and that was how mm. I found you. Yeah. But when I was talking to you, like one of the first times I met with you, you said to me, Amy, one of your problems is going to be, you think you're a therapist who got lucky because you had a viral article. If you don't believe that you deserve to be on the stage, other people aren't going to believe you either. And as soon as you said that, I burst into tears. And I'm not usually the kind of person that walks no, around crying in public. And so, and you were absolutely right. I thought, you know, I don't, I don't belong to be on this stage. Like I shouldn't be here. And I think you were right though. As long as I believed that getting up on that stage, like nobody was going to believe I deserved to be there if I didn't. How do we know when we need to do that internal work and then not walk around announcing our struggles to the point that we cause other people to feel sorry for ourselves? Yeah, it's a fair question. It's uh, uh, it's the difference between struggles that you're in the midst of and struggles which you've overcome. And on the whole, the best storytelling comes somewhat after the fact. And 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 that's just a, a life strategy. I would say pick uh, pick an issue, pick a failing, pick a struggle, one that you've dealt with successfully, uh, and you've seen the other end because otherwise. Uh, you're not telling the story in the way stories need to be told that we like to hear them, which is with a, a clear arc. Um, and uh, as I tell people often, 
most of the stories we tell are variations of the quest. We're trying to achieve something. We're trying to get somewhere. We're trying to reach a goal of some kind. And we humans love those stories, but we like to get to the achievement part too. We want to, we want to get to the end of that. We want to hear the struggles along the way, but we want to hear the happy ending. We hate failed quests um, and we hate unfinished quests. So uh, uh, give us, give us the full story when you've, when you've got there and, and you've had some time to digest it and think about it and put it to bed, emotionally speaking. To which the end of my story is that same day you helped me write the TEDx talk that got 23 million views. So it wow. definitely has the happy ending. <laughs> Yay. But in that moment, I certainly agreed with you that like, wow, if I feel this way, and I think in our everyday conversations for our listeners who aren't public speakers, but if you walk around thinking I'm not worthwhile or I don't have anything interesting to say, because I hear that from a lot of people too, like, my life's not that interesting. So I go and I talk to people, but I don't have anything interesting to say. And then they project that. And then they really struggle to form these healthy relationships with people. Yeah, you've got to believe you're worthy. And that's a, a different uh, job. I'm, I'm not a therapist as you are, so I'm not as qualified to comment on that. But I certainly see that all the time in people who have imposter syndrome. That's very common. Uh, the level of people that I work with, they've achieved beyond what they expected to and 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 they don't believe they deserve deserve to be there so doing that sort of work and accepting it um, as uh, yeah I'm just another ordinary human being at some level um, but I, I did achieve these things so uh, that self-acceptance is extremely important um, in terms of the everyday stuff, most of the things that we experience every day aren't that interesting in terms of storytelling and sharing with other people. So you do need to start to look for the stories in your life. And that involves looking for that arc. So don't give us the, don't give us half the story. Look for, look for stories that have been resolved and that are, um, that are complete in some way so that uh, you can give people that sense of, uh, uh, a story that's, uh, a story arc. We like a sense of completion. And so that's another thing to think about in that way. And maybe the last thing I want to touch on with you is our ability mm. to read other people's body language. That sometimes I think when somebody's getting bored, maybe somebody doesn't realize it and the story continues on and on, or sometimes we misread body language. I know you've done tons of things on, on body language. What do you think are some of the biggest cues we should be looking for? Or maybe some of the biggest mistakes that we make when it comes to reading other people? Yeah, the, the biggest mistake uh, people make if they've sort of uh, studied body language a little bit or they've read about it or, or they've watched it on TV or something is this idea that you can read uh, deeply people that you don't know very well and, and read them accurately by certain tells. Like somebody's told you a tell. If you twitch this way with your left eye, that means this. And all body language is... is um, relevant only to the moment, um, that is how that person is feeling in that moment. Um, and there are also many multiple possible reasons why somebody might do a particular uh, physical act. So if I cross my arms, we typically all believe that means you're defensive or uncomfortable or, or resistant in some way, but it also might just mean you're cold or you're tired. This is a way of hugging yourself, giving yourself a little reassurance. So um, it 
it can mean a variety of things. And it's important to know that until you know the person as more than a passing acquaintance, you need to get their basic level of body language behavior um, before you can um, see what's changed and when somebody's bored or, or uh, see a, a change in tempo and in the conversation and pick up on the real meaning of that. Otherwise you're liable to misread it because everybody thinks they know what a liar looks like, right? Some people think, oh, well, and I've had this told to me many times with perfect sincerity, right? If somebody blinks a lot, you know, that means uh, they're lying. Well, it may also mean that the room is dry and they're unconsciously uh, uh, trying to lubricate their eyes because that's what you do. That's the other reason to blink. Um, or this person is talking quickly. That means they're a liar. Well, the studies of liars show that some people talk more quickly when they're lying. Other people talk more slowly when they're lying because they're making it up as they go along. And so they're talking faster. They're talking slower. Either one can mean that you're a liar. Which one do you choose? Well, you can't unless you know that person really well already. And then they're liable to be other cues that are more immediately helpful. Still, there are a few basic things in terms of interest in the conversation. One of them is, and this is very fundamental, so you can pretty much trust this one, is that we tend to move toward things that we like and away from things that we don't like. And so at a very simple level, if you've been standing a few feet away from somebody and had a good conversation, and then they start to gradually <laughs> pull away in some way, or they turn slightly or that kind of thing, then that's a fairly reliable indicator that they're starting to check out or they need to move on or they've got some other idea or they want to talk to somebody else or whatever the situation is. Don't take that as a huge uh, slap at your personality or your self-worth. It's just they're ready to move on. They're, it's time for the next conversation. And, and so uh, proximity or closeness is, is a good indicator. Um, that, that's, uh, that's one thing. And, and it's, it's very subtle in terms of we may just move our head back slightly or it's not actually somebody backing out of the room. That would be a, an unmistakable sign, let's say. So very subtle changes in body language um, can, can indicate that. So that's, that's one that's, uh, that's pretty reliable. Um, we used to say that, we used to tell people they had to make eye contact all the time. And so when people look away, that that's a sign they're losing interest in one that. Um, Conversations are much more complicated than that. There's been a lot of research into conversations and we make eye contact at certain points in the conversation, but we also deliberately look away because it's simply too awkward to maintain eye contact with somebody else sort of insistently for long periods of time, right? So the natural thing to do is to look somebody in the eye to begin a conversation to make sure you've got their attention and they'll respond by looking you in the eye. And then you start talking and your, your uh, eyes then can look off as you're chattering away. And then you come back to check to see if you're getting the agreement or the nod or the reaction. Um, and then you can start to uh, signal that you're coming to the end of your, your um, story or, or your commentary and ready to turn it over to the other person. And there's a whole dance of eye contact and, and, and looking away that regulates that. We learn how to do that from about age two to about age eight. And so if we've had a reasonably normal, happy childhood, we're good at that by the time we're about eight years old. Um, and so just go with that. Just let it happen. Let the eyes come and go and don't worry about it. That all makes sense. And I get frustrated, as I'm sure you do, when you see these articles that are like five signs somebody's 
listening to you and it's these very you know, static right. <laughs> points that are supposed to be 100% all the time. But as you say, people's body language varies somewhat. Yeah. So for anybody who's listening, most of our audience is not going to be public speakers necessarily. But if somebody says, gosh, I want to get better at communicating, is there one of your books that I know you have many, but is there one of your books that you would point people to to read that they would most likely find the most helpful? Yeah, the one that's a mix of uh, how to put together things to say and also body language is, is uh, the one that people tell me is, is the most helpful sort of to, uh, to become better at your job or, or in relationships or, or uh, both work and, and home life sort of. And that's called Power Cues. Uh, it was published by Harvard in 2014. So that's the Wonderful. one I recommend. We'll link to all your books in the show notes because I think a lot of people would be very interested in learning more about all the things you have to say in your books. Mm -hmm. And as you know, I'm looking forward to your next book already. Thank you. Yes, I'm very excited to be starting down the path. And this book on the voice, it's uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. How, awesome. to, how to have a stronger voice in speaking and, and also the care and feeding of your voice so that it doesn't get tired or give out. Something I will definitely want to learn more about the more I podcast and the more I speak, <laughs> the more exactly. I realize how important it is to practice. Nick Morgan, thank you so much for being on Mentally Stronger. Amy, it's wonderful to see you and get a chance to catch up. Welcome to The Therapist Take. Let's break down some of Nick's strategies and talk about how to apply them to your own life. Number one, talk about what's interesting, not just what's on your mind. If you don't know somebody very well and you want to develop a deeper relationship, talk about interesting topics, not just what happens to be on your mind. I'm sure that you've gotten into a conversation with someone before and the other person just wants to talk about something stressful that happened to them or something they're really excited about, but it's not anything you understand or that pertains to you, so it's hard to stay involved in the conversation. Remember, just because you're thinking about something doesn't mean the other person needs to hear about it. Number two, share your struggles as a way to be relatable. Think about why you like certain people in your life. Is it because they're perfect and everything comes easy to them? Probably not, right? You probably like someone because you can relate to them. They might have similar struggles or they're able to laugh about the same challenges or they talk about shortcomings that you can relate to. Be open to sharing some of your struggles with other people, but be cautious about oversharing. I know it's tough to know sometimes where that line is. How much should you say? And there are often some tricky situations, like should you tell your boss that you're going through a divorce? Should you tell another parent that your child is having a rough time at school? Should you tell your friends about your financial struggles? Interestingly, Nick's advice is to start out by sharing some of your past struggles that you've successfully worked through. That way, people won't feel sorry for you or feel like they need to take care of you. Save conversations about your current struggles for the people that you already have a closer relationship with. And number three, remember that no one needs 110% of you. Nick says it's okay to show an edited version of yourself. And that doesn't mean that you're not being authentic. But as a therapist, I know a lot of people struggle with that. They'll say that they feel fake because they act different in different situations. 
but sometimes that just means you're being socially appropriate, right? You might talk to your grandmother a little differently than you talk to your former college roommate. Or you might act differently in front of your boss as compared to your brother. That doesn't mean that you're being fake. It just means that you're being socially appropriate to whatever situation you're in. Which is why a lot of people find social media extra stressful. Because you have people from all different corners of your life following you. And you have to decide which side of you to show. But the point is, give yourself permission to hold back on some sides of you. And trust that that doesn't mean you're being authentic. And trust that that doesn't mean you're being inauthentic. Instead, it means that you're self-aware and you recognize which parts of you are most likely to be appreciated by the person in front of you. So those are three of Nick's strategies that I highly recommend. Talk about what's interesting, not necessarily what's on your mind. Share your struggles as a way to be relatable. And remember that nobody needs 110% of you. To learn more about communication and authenticity, check out all of Dr. Morgan's books, including Power Cues. Thank you for hanging out with me today and for listening to the Mentally Stronger podcast. If you like the show, leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. That's one of the best ways for us to get our show in front of other people so that we can help make the world a stronger place. And if you want more tips on building mental strength, subscribe to Mentally Stronger Premium. You'll get weekly bonus episodes where I answer your questions about everything from relationship problems and addiction to family dilemmas and mental health issues. You'll also get access to our private community where you can get support as you build mental strength. And I'll give you tons of exclusive extras for being a premium subscriber. Sign up at mentallystronger.supercast.com or just click on the link in the show notes. If you know somebody who could benefit from learning more about mental strength, share this show with them. Simply sharing a link to this episode could help someone feel better and grow stronger. And as always, a big thank you to my show's producer, who's more likely to be an undersharer than an oversharer, Nick Valentine.